You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. My name is Rick Bowers, and I'm a church planting resident here at Redeemer. It's always a joy and a pleasure to get to be up here and to walk through God's Word with you. I'm excited about our text today. I'm excited about the part of the Christmas story that we're in. Uh, This morning, we're entering into our fourth week of Advent. We've spent the past three weeks walking through the Christmas story, uh, through the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem. And today, we're going to continue journeying through this story. So if you'd go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 2, in just a few minutes, we'll start in verse 13, but Matthew chapter 2. So last Sunday, if you were here, uh, Joe very faithfully walked us through the part of the Christmas story where we saw the wise men come to a young Jesus Christ and bring gifts. And Joe explained to us and showed us how the bringing of those gifts to the Christ child is really representative of the same gifts that we bring to Christ as well. And he painted a great picture for us of how the kingship of Jesus not only is something that we see later in his life, but is from his very birth. So Jesus is king all throughout his life. His kingship is all the time and has always been. This morning, we're going to see something a little bit different in Scripture. Today, we're going to see that Matthew gives us three promises of hope that are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, in the birth of the Christ child. Now, promises are important to us. Promises are important in our culture. We make promises uh, to one another. So there's promises between person and person. There's promises between us and sometimes organizations. So there's promises in that direction. Sometimes there's promises between organizations to organizations. Uh, A promise is a guarantee or an assurance that something's going to get done. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. I promise this. Contracts are types of promises. Covenants are types of promises. And if promises from you to me are important, promises from one organization to another are important, then promises from the God of the universe to us should be of infinite importance to us. The problem with promises in our culture is that we're used to them being broken. Promises are broken all the time. I'm sure you've experienced it personally in your own life. Uh, We see in the news, we see big contracts and covenants, types of things like that being broken all the time. And so we enter into promises in our current culture typically with a healthy dose of skepticism. And sometimes we can even approach the promises of God the same way. We can ask ourselves, I don't don't know that I can believe this promise that God puts in front of me. I don't know that I can trust in this promise that God puts in front of me. So this morning, we're going to look at these three promises in Matthew 2, and we're going to walk through them one by one, and we're going to see if the God of the Bible does in fact keep his promises here in the scriptures. In order to do this, we're going to need to move around a little bit in scripture this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stick with me. If you have your coffee, take a good long drink of it, get as much caffeine as you need. Um, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to be able to sing as wonderfully or preach as entertaining as these kiddos were. So get a good drink of your coffee. There's plenty more out there if you need it. Uh, As I was coming up and walking through the text and really digging up some of these truths, I'm excited about them, but I thought there's a lot here. 
And I almost felt like, oh, this is a lot for, for our folks. But then I remembered next Sunday, you guys get Sunday off. <laughs> so let's rest in these promises for two weeks, and then we'll be good to go. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning, then we'll jump right into the text. Holy Father, I just ask that you would hear our cries this morning, praise you that you're faithful, praise you that you give us your word to tell us who you are. Jesus, be our shepherd, um, be our guide as we go through scripture this morning, um, show us the truth of, of who you are. And Spirit of the living God, would you open up our hearts and minds to receive uh, your message this morning, uh, whatever parts of our lives need to be soaked in your truth, would you make that happen? Uh, would you open up our our ears to hear and our eyes to see more of you. We love you and trust you. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 13, Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So here's what's happening. Sometime after Jesus has been born, Joseph has another dream. We're going to see that Joseph has lots of dreams through this story. An angel's telling him that the three of them need to flee Israel and they need to go to Egypt And the reason they need to do this is because the current ruler of Israel is King Herod. And as Joe talked about to us last week, Herod was just a maniacal king. He was very paranoid. He didn't want anybody taking over his rule. He loved his authority. He wanted to keep his authority. And Herod had gotten word of this Israelite ruler, this Israelite Messiah to come, and he didn't like it. And Herod's going to do anything in his power, we're going to see soon, to be sure that that doesn't happen. So the angel comes to Joseph and said, hey, there's danger. You guys need to flee. The reason there's danger is because their child is this Messiah. So they flee to Egypt. And Matthew drops this here. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. As Matthew's recounting the Christ child and the movement in his early life, he points backwards into the Old Testament and he says, look, the things talked about then, the promises made then, carries, carry whispers of what's happening right now. Matthew is quoting the prophet Hosea, specifically in your Bibles, Hosea 11.1. 1. You don't have to turn there, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We won't dive deeply into Hosea this morning, but what's important for you to know is that Hosea was a prophet. He spoke the words of God. And both from his prophetic message and the way Hosea lived his life, he told a story of the unfaithfulness of the Israelite people, of their adultery, of seeking other gods constantly. So what does Hosea mean here in 11.1? If we read this correctly... He's calling national Israel a son. Who does this? This is not something that we're familiar with today in our culture and context. When the President of the United States has an important message to give to the American people, we don't say that he's going to address the son. We say that he will address the nation. 
So who calls a nation a son? We're going to see that God does. Hosea is not making this language up. In fact, Hosea is speaking the same language of Exodus chapter 4, where for the very first time, God calls Israel, the nation of Israel, his son. Follow along the screen with me. This will be Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God talking to Moses. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. There's that language. And I say to you, let my son, there it is again, go that he may serve me. So in speaking to Moses, God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn son, his child. This people whom God has identified upon the planet earth and has selected as his people are the people who he loves. They're his child. So God calls Israel a son way back in Exodus 4. Hosea uses the same language in Hosea 11. And then we're back to Matthew. So Matthew's using this same language, but what is Matthew doing? Because he's not talking about Israel. Matthew's talking about one single solitary human being, and he's using this same language. Here's what Matthew's doing. Remember that God saw the nation of Israel as his son, and he wanted them to represent him to the other nations. And if we know anything about Israel, which if we've been here through the Jeremiah series, we should know this, Israel has not been an obedient and faithful son. Time after time, Israel has broken God's law in their sin. Time after time, they've chased after the other gods of the land. Time after time, they have sought treasures and trinkets instead of the heart of the living God. They failed to represent their father in the middle of a wicked and perverse generation. So Matthew grabs the son language about national Israel and he makes it equal with the Christ child. Matthew's saying that the Christ child is the fulfillment of this language of sonship, this thread that's run all through the Old Testament. So what he's saying is, if God's son Israel, whom God rescued out of Egypt, and who constantly sin and break God's law, Jesus is the son who God's rescuing out of Egypt who will constantly be faithful and will obey his law. If Israel was the son sent into the wilderness and tested and tried and found grumbling and complaining, then Jesus will be the son sent into the wilderness to be tested and tried, and he'll be found faithful. Where Israel would fail to rightly represent their God, Jesus will succeed in perfect representation of his father. The fullness of time has come, and God has sent forth his son, a perfect son that will not fail. And this son, in verse 15 here in Matthew 2, is being carried in the arms of his mother out of Egypt after the death of Herod. This son is the Christ child. He is the perfect and better Israel. This is the point Matthew's making, and if Jesus Christ is the better son then that's good news for you and for me. This isn't just something we look at as factual. This has true and real implications on our lives today because this now means the position of belonging to God is no longer in reference of being part of a specific group of people. 
It's no longer in reference to keeping the law, to be an Israelite lawkeeper. Instead, now belonging to God is in reference to Jesus, to this child being carried in his mother's arms. It's determined by our faith in him. Paul says in Galatians 2, it's not obeying the law that saves us, but our faith in Christ alone. This is good news for us. This is the gospel message for us. Because we are just like the Israelites. Amen? We are constantly prone to wander. We sing the beautiful hymn that reminds us that. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We grumble and we complain and not a day passes that we're not found in sin, breaking God's law. It's impossible for us to keep that law. And if was the only son we had to look back on, then we would still be working to keep that law. We would still be following a sacrificial system. We would still be waiting to see if God was going to come through and save us. But Israel is not the only son we have. We have the perfect and full son, Jesus Christ, and it's upon him that we set our affection and our hope and our trust and our faith so that we can be saved from our sin. Matthew's very first promise fulfilled tells of a Messiah who has come as the perfect Son of God so that the imperfect sons and daughters of God, you and I, may still be found righteous in the sight of our Father. This is promise one kept. Let's move on to promise number two. Follow with me starting in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Just a quick note, if the timing on these verses throws you off, um, it's always good to remember that Scripture is typically not running in linear fashion like we really would like it to. As Westerners, we love linear reading, but the Bible is often not written that way, so we have to adjust to the text a little bit. So as Matthew's telling us about this, he points backwards again. He's going to do this again, second time. He points back to Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah 31.15. If you want to turn there now in your Bible, go ahead, because there's some other things we need to see there. Jeremiah will be just to the right of center in your scripture. And it's going to be on the screen behind me, this particular text. I'm not going to read it, but you can see that Matthew quotes it exactly. So what dots does Matthew want us to connect here in promise two. We're going to have to think a little bit on this one because we're not coming to the text as a Jewish reader. We're not coming to the text with intimate knowledge of Jeremiah and the writings of the prophet. We're coming to the text and we need some insider information. We run into this all the time in our lives where we need a little bit more information to make sense of something. For example, if you guys, maybe you're here and, and you don't know anything about Star Wars. And your friends begin to talk about the Millennium Falcon, and they begin to talk about Boba Fett. Maybe you can make a little bit of sense of that. You can say, oh, that's a spaceship, and that's a a TV show on Disney Plus now about a bounty hunter. Maybe you can make sense of that. You can get something there. 
But if your Star Wars friends begin to talk about more, and they say something like um, the tavern scene on Mos Eisley was just really defined who Obi-Wan Kenobi was by his ability to use the Force, especially to hide the identity of R2-D2 and C-3PO from the stormtroopers that they were interacting with, which ultimately was hiding the identity of Luke Skywalker so that Darth Vader wouldn't find him, then you're going to be lost. (laughs) Because you're going to have no idea anything about Star Wars. You need insider knowledge to make sense of this. And this is the same way we're coming to this particular promise. We need some knowledge, so let's dive in. Remember, Matthew is quoting Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31.15, Jeremiah is talking, he's prophesying about the exile, the forcing of the Israelites out of their land. And as he's writing, he says, A crying voice was heard in Ramah, the voice of Rachel weeping for her children. What Jeremiah is saying is that as the people of Israel are being forced out of their land, their ancestors are weeping in their tombs. Rachel was considered the mother of Israel, and she's dead. She's buried in Ramah. So Matthew grabs this same language, and he drops it right in here, and he equates the two. He says, The murdering of the Israelite children in Bethlehem carries in it the same tearful wailing of Rachel in her tomb at Ramah during the exile. So there's a little insider information, but there's something much more that Matthew is doing here. Pay attention to this especially. In Jeremiah 31.15, there are weeping and there are tears. But if you have your text open there this morning, you're on verse 15. Move over to verse 17 with me. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and they shall come back. From the land of the enemy. And then, if you slide your finger from verse 17 over to verse 31, Jeremiah says these things. I'm going to jump around a bit, it'll be on the screen behind me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Church, in Jeremiah 31, the weeping of Rachel in her tomb is nested in the middle of so much hope. As she weeps for the children of the exile, hope is swirling around the Israelites, even as they're being forced out of their land. In that moment, God says, I am going to rescue you. I am going to make a new covenant with you. And what Matthew is communicating here by pointing back to Jeremiah is the very same hope. As the children of Bethlehem have been murdered by Herod, as mothers are holding their dead children in their arms... Hope is swirling around them because the Messiah has escaped the murdering Herod. And he will usher in the promise told by Jeremiah, the promise made to the Israelites. And this morning, that same promise is for us too. The exile is over. 
The weeping of Rachel has ended. The Messiah has come. A new covenant has been made. God's law is now written on our hearts through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And it's because of Christ's atoning work that our iniquities and sin can be forever forgiven, remembered no more. This is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And that is our great and wonderful hope. Yet even with so much hope to cling to and hold on to, we still enter into moments in our lives where we feel hopeless. If we read this text, I think it'd be helpful to think about those mothers holding their dying infants or dead infants, dead children in their arms, the mothers of Bethlehem. And as I think about that, I wonder, did they have hope? did Did they know? Did they... Were they right there in that moment thinking back to the promises of God? Were they telling those things to themselves? Maybe. We enter into situations in a similar way, and there's many, many times where we can feel like our hope is gone. Maybe you're working on a relationship, and that relationship is just failing time and time again, and you feel the hope of sustaining that relationship falling through your fingers. Maybe you're working a job and it's been a long time and the job all of a sudden isn't just making sense for you anymore. Or maybe it's not adding up to pay your bills anymore and you're starting to lose hope. How am I going to make it? Maybe you get the worst news of all, a phone call that somebody's passed away, a phone call that you've lost someone you love deeply. There are moments in our lives that hit all of us where we just feel like hope is gone or where we feel like it's falling right through our fingers. And it's the furthest thing from us. But I want to remind you this morning, church, that just because you feel something doesn't mean that it's true. I don't know if the, if the mothers of Bethlehem felt hope But even if they didn't, it still was swirling around them, just like it is you and just like it is me. Our hope is in this Messiah who has already come. And our hope is not that God would remove us from every situation that hurts and every situation that tears us apart, but our hope and the promise and the truth is that he walks beside us in those situations. He does not abandon us in those situations. And our hope not only lies there, but also looks forward to the day when the Messiah will come again and there will be no more tears and all the pain will stop and we will see the Christ in full glory. Matthew's second promise fulfilled tells of a Messiah who has come as the hope of the world so that for those whose hope has gone, mourning and weeping can turn to joy and dancing. Promise two has been kept. Let's go to our final promise in the text today. You guys still with me? All right, here we go. Starting in verse 19. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So after Herod has died, Joseph and Mary and the Christ child begin to make their way out of Egypt. And as they begin to do that, Joseph has another dream. Joseph has lots of dreams here. He's warned about a threat, so they turn and head another way. They turn and head to Galilee, to Nazareth. And Matthew drops another promise here in verse 23 of our scripture. This time, Matthew is not very specific about this promise. He doesn't say a prophet. He doesn't say the name. He actually says plural prophets. He isn't very specific because there's not a prophet that makes this promise. So when we come to the text, what do we do? Is Matthew a liar? Is he confused? Is this biblical error? Is this one of those crazy, horrible biblical contradictions everybody always warns us about? The Bible contradicts itself, so it can't be true? No. We need more insider information. We need to know more about Nazareth. Near the southern end of Galilee, which is where they were headed, is a small town called Nazareth. If you were alive during that time... During Jesus' time, the town would have had maybe 200 to 500 people in it, maybe double the size of the chairs in this room. That would have been the entire town. You definitely would have known each other. It would not have been easy to hide in that town. Your home, if you lived in Nazareth, would have been made of large, rough, uncut stones because you wouldn't have had the means to form nice bricks to build nice homes. When you laid your head down to go to sleep at night, you might have gotten wet. Because the roof over your head was a simple thatch roof, branches sort of hewn together and made to hold together. It sometimes leaks on you as you sleep. You would have been very poor. You probably would have been some kind of farmer. You would have been, had something to do with agriculture in your life. And you would have lived in a town that was really outside of the hustle and the bustle of the Israelite life itself. You would have kind of been in the middle of nowhere. And not only would you have been from a town that time forgot, you would have been despised by other people. They would have mocked you. They would have made fun of you just from the town that you come from. In the book of John, we, have, we even have an example of this. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we might have felt the same way if we were alive in that time and we were from a different place. There were no prophecies at all in Scripture that said that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, but there were other prophecies, prophecies that told of the nature of the Messiah, prophetic writings that said the Messiah would be scorned and despised, a worm and not a man, mocked and shamed by others, that he would be unknown to those closest to him. 
There were prophecies that talked of a Messiah who would be hated by the nations, who would have no form or majesty to look upon, who would not be beautiful and desirous, but would be rejected, a man of grief, a man of sorrow, a man who people would go out of their way to avoid. There are no prophecies that spoke of Nazareth, but there are many prophecies that speak of a rejected Messiah just like the people of Nazareth, and Matthew knew this. Through all of our texts this morning and through the whole Christmas story itself, Matthew is showing the path and how God has moved his son from place to place so that he ends up in Nazareth. This is not an accident. So that his perfect Son, the Savior of the world, would come scorned by mankind, pitied by no one, cast out by the nations. The Messiah would not come from wealth or royalty or status, but he would come poor, with no place to lay his head. God does not operate according to the ways of the world. Amen? He is not a distant God who sits in heaven looking down at us in our struggle. He has drawn near to us through Christ. And being fully human, he has felt everything we feel. If you're sitting in the room this morning and you've ever been judged harshly because of your origin, because of where you're from, which in our culture today most often happens because of the color of our skin, happens because of what country we might be from, what part of town we live in, our income level. If you've ever had judgments spoken against you harshly, if you've ever caught glances of someone towards you in a hateful way because of these reasons, and you felt that shame and that sickness in the pit of your stomach, Jesus the Nazarene has felt it too. Our God knows what we feel in a way that most of us fail to ever grasp. He has become fully human. Matthew's final promise to us this morning shows us that we have a Messiah who has left the royalty of heaven to become lowly so that the lowly may one day enjoy the royalty of heaven. Promise three has been kept. So as we close this morning, we sit in here on December 19th, 2021, and we're looking at Christmas Day on the horizon. We've got a week, and Christmas is here. The time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect Son of God, the hope of the world. And my hope is that as we've walked through Matthew's text this morning, you guys have a small taste of the way that God keeps his promises. My hope is you've been able to see that because that's Matthew's point in this text. That's what he wants us to know overall. And he does this all throughout his gospel if you want to go on and read it. He points backwards a lot. Here's the thing, if these three promises have been kept, then that very likely means the other promises of the scripture have been kept as well. In fact, the Bible tells us that they have. 
And if all the promises have been kept, then that means Jesus is the Messiah. And he has come to rescue us from our sin. He has lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and risen from the dead victoriously so that you and I, by our faith, can be saved. God keeps his promises. And we have another promise we're waiting on now to be kept. That's the point of our Advent season, right? We look back at the arrival and the birth and the coming of the Messiah, and we celebrate, and then we look forward in hope. Our hearts are stirred in anticipation for the Messiah to come again. This is hope for us as Christians. This is excitement for us as Christians. But church, I promise you there's a family living next door to you. And you see them, maybe you don't see them. Maybe they just open the garage, pull in, and shut it behind them. Or maybe you see them walk out and walk their dog. Maybe your kids play with their kids in the street. There's a family living right next door to you who has no hope. As you take your kids to their soccer games or dance troupe or wherever they may go, there are other parents around you there that have no hope. Students, as you guys go to class, I promise you, there's young men and young women that you guys pass in the halls every day or who sit next to you in class and they have no hope. And who will tell them if we don't? This morning, church, as we sit here with hope swirling around us and as we're given the greatest hope of all, it's not for us to just sit and rejoice in. Yes, we do that, but we're invited into God's mission. We're invited in to do exactly what Matthew has done, to go and tell others that God does, in fact, keep his promises. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and good to us and have been gracious and good to us. I ask that you would send your spirit to remind us even now of the coming of your son, of the arrival of the Messiah. Remind us of how you keep your promises and for those areas of our life where we are doubting that and where hope is failing and hope is falling and it's hard to grab it anymore. I just ask that your spirit would come and fill us up and remind us this morning that you keep your promises, that you are with us and you walk with us through that. And let that ignite in us a passion and a desire to share that reality, that truth that brings us hope and joy with those in our life that you cause us to interact with. We love you. Help us trust you. We ask it in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.